Welcome to Manufacturing Success, a podcast presented by the Fisher and Phillips Manufacturing Industry Practice Group. This practice group is a national team of labor and employment attorneys who focus on helping manufacturing employers effectively handle today's legal issues and prepare for the future. Dealing with labor and employment issues is complicated. This is especially the case with manufacturing employers. That is why we're using a podcast to share information. Our topics deserve a conversation. My name is Mike Carruth. I'm a partner in the Columbia, South Carolina office of Fisher & Phillips. I'm a member of the Fisher & Phillips Manufacturing Industry Practice Group. And for over 30 years, I've practiced in the area of labor and employment law. Most of my work involves representing manufacturers. So let's get started with this episode of Manufacturing Success. Going back to 2021, there have been some significant changes and efforts to change our federal labor laws. Today's episode will involve a conversation about what could be some of the most significant changes to federal labor laws that we've seen in our country in many, many years. Of course, we're going to focus this conversation on how these potential changes in the law, potential changes to how the labor board handles the law, Uh, will impact manufacturers. For today's conversation, I'm being joined by one of my partners, someone I've known for a long time, who has a great deal of expertise and experience in a wide array of traditional labor law matters. He also does employment law too, but he has done a great deal of work in the area of labor and employment. He's up to date on a lot of these changes. My guest today is Steve Mitchell. Steve is the regional managing partner for Fisher Phillips in the Columbia, South Carolina office. And most importantly for our conversation today, Steve was recently appointed co-chair of the ABA's Committee on the Development of the Law under the NLRA. So he's the best person that we could have as a guest today to cover these important issues. So Steve, welcome to Manufacturing Success. I'll let you say hello and give a little bit of background on your labor and employment practice. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. Really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to this group. So my background uh, is in primarily manufacturing. I, I'm the co-practice leader of our manufacturing industry practices group here at Fisher Phillips and, and do a lot of work in that area. You and I have done a lot of work over the years for a number of different manufacturers. Most of my work, I'd say the majority of my practice is traditional labor law, although I do handle a good deal of employment litigation. And that's, as you know, why I initially came to the group together that we started practicing with. I handle all aspects of traditional labor law. I've been doing that since 95. But, you know, that would include union organizing drives, unfair labor practices, collective bargaining, uh, ALJ hearings, appellate work for those things. And like you, practice is national because that's, that's just the nature of, of traditional labor law. So that's one of the reasons I like it so much, too, is we get to go and see fun things like when we had that organizing activity up in Alaska. So excited to be here and talk about this. That was interesting. Well, great, uh, Steve. This will be a good conversation. And again, let's go back to 2021, because that's when a lot of changes were announced in the area of federal labor law. And uh, of course, we're talking about things that were happening and are continuing to be happening with the National Labor Relations Board and how that entity governs and manages the relationship between employers and unions. 
Today, I want to focus our conversation on what's happening with the NLRB's efforts to expand how employees can select the union to be the exclusive representative for a group of employees. And of course, I'm talking about the efforts by the NLRB general counsel, Jennifer Abruzzo, to bring back the Joy Silk Doctrine. I don't want that to be confused with any brand of uh, underwear that people may have, but the Joy Silk Doctrine is a legal standard. So let's hop right in. And my first question to you to get it started would be, what is the Joy Silk Doctrine and what exactly will it change if it does come back? Well, I'm sure nobody wanted to have a history lesson, get into the legal details here, but I think we have to. And it is interesting that this is, uh, the Joy Silk Doctrine came out of a 1949 uh, Labor Board decision. Important to you and me is, is, or interesting to you and me, is that the Joy Silk Mill was actually located here in South Carolina in Darlington, the home of the Darlington 500. And, um, and what it really, what said, what they said, or the, the holding coming out of here was if the union presents authorization cards indicating that a majority of the workers wish to be represented by the union, the employer is obligated to recognize and bargain with the union, even without an election, unless the employer can establish a good faith doubt as to the majority status. And if the employer commits an independent ULP following its refusal to to recognize the union, if the union makes such a demand, uh, that would those ULPs would be considered evidence of bad faith, and all of this would actually result in a bargaining order without an election, uh, really based on the cards that have been signed. So, so what is the law today? So, we're talking about something that the chief attorney for the labor board wants to change. They, she wants to get this in. So as we sit here today, what is the law of the land as far as this labor law issue? Well, I, let me tell you, and I, and I think it's, it's significant to give a little bit more law because all that was the law up until 1974 when the U.S. Supreme Court in, in a case called Linden Lumber basically determined that what Joy Silk said was, was not accurate and that that the employer can lawfully refuse a union's demand for recognition based on union authorization cards um, that are purporting to represent a majority of employees. And it gives the union the burden then to invoke the board election process. So it switches it around. And then, and then in another um, Supreme Court case, U.S. Supreme Court case, the issue of, of signing union cards to designate a union as exclusive bargaining was then limited to only those situations where the employer's unlawful conduct was so severe as to make a fair election impossible. So the way the law has, is today is that an employer, if, if, a, if, a, if a union demands recognition or states that they have a majority of employees signed up on cards, the employer is, is entitled to say they, they don't agree and that they would prefer to go through with a, um, uh, through the secret ballot election process. And there's no real burden on the employer to, to explain why they have a doubt. Um, the, only, the only real situation where there would be an issue would be if, if, the, if the, the manager or supervisor, whoever was presented with this, um, was actually to review authorization cards and, and, and in effect recognize them, 
which is, you know, with anybody that's been through a union avoidance training would know, you know, don't accept them, don't look at the cards. Um, and that would be really the only exception to it. The only other exception actually would also be if the employer just committed hugely egregious unfair labor practices so that the board realized and recognized that there's absolutely no way to have a fair election. So an example would be if the, the, the plant manager stood up and said, I don't care what anybody says, but the owner of the company told me they're shutting this plant down if you ever have a union, regardless. In that situation, they could have what you and I both know is a Gissel order, where, where the board could say, there's no way to have a fair election, so you got to bargain with the union. Well, thanks, Steve. I, I've always wondered, ever since I've started practicing labor law, we did, as you said, train supervisors, don't accept, don't look at them, you know, treat them like a hot potato, wrap them in paper and put them in a box if they leave the cards on your desk. So now I understand why. So uh, it's kind of uh, the Lyndon Lumber uh, approach there. So now I understand exactly why we've always told supervisors that. And sometimes I've answered those questions. They said, why do we do it that way? I would say that's because that's the way I was taught to train you. So now I do know. So thank you for enlightening me on that point. One other thing, one other thing, just before you, um, you know, I, I think something that's extremely important is to focus on is that, that the general counsel here is trying to bring, bring back this, this, this joy silk approach, because, um, you know, in the normal course of events, um, the NLRB secret ballot vote is very difficult for a union to win. And we know that this is a pro pro union, um, you know, administration. And I think any chance to avoid that secret ballot election um, is something that, they, that the unions are pressing for. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I think this effort is a complete uh, effort to avoid and restrict and limit the uh, use of the secret ballot process because I think organized labor has a difficult time uh, winning those. So I would agree with that. Now, what when uh, the GC for the labor board says this Joy Silk doctrine should come back, she's not going to say and doesn't say that she wants to do that to avoid secret ballot votes. What does she say based maybe on, on the committee that you're on? you may be more familiar with. What does she say is the justification for bringing this back? Well, you know, I, I think that, you know, in, in the discussions I've heard her have about this, she, she does not, she, she says that, you know, there just should be a good faith doubt that if, if the employer is presented with cards and the cards show a majority of people sign uh, have signed them and that a majority of people wish to be represented by the union. Those cards, as you know, are legal documents. And she says that the employer just immediately refuses to do it so that they have a secret ballot election, which buys them time and during which they can commit unfair labor practices or, you know, or we would say lawful. And we, we believe you could lawfully persuade employees why they didn't want to vote for a union. But, but she believes that companies just simply do that to buy time, to talk the people out of it, and, and, in, and in cases to unlawfully talk them out of it. Right. So she thinks that unless you have a good faith, you're just going down the road of, of, of an unlawful, unfair labor practice. So, so Joy Silk is not the law of the land today. Uh, so what is the status, if, if you know, of that coming back and being something that 
would be the law of the land? Well, what we know is, is that there is a case, it's called CMAX. And in that case, it's, it's, it's and as you know, the way, the way it works is in order to change the law, the, the general counsel will present a case to the board and then the board can make a decision and, and she would advocate that they change the law. And the CMAX case is that case. Uh, it's being considered by the board right now. Um, there's no real way to, to, to predict the definitive time as to when it's gonna come out. Um, but my guess would be we'll get a decision within the next six to 12 months. And at that point, our manufacturing employers are going to be faced with a joy silk situation and, and need to be prepared to deal with it. Thank you for listening to part one of this two-part episode of Manufacturing Success. Part two will be available on fisherphillips.com shortly. This podcast provides an overview of a specific developing situation. It is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal advice for any particular fact situation.